This is an ABC podcast. Have you heard of the podcast Slow Burn? I'm going to start with a story that you've probably never heard. It takes place in June of 1972. I was first suckered in when they explored Watergate. This is Slow Burn, a podcast about Watergate. The fascinating story. And the strange name Watergate. And again in season two when they dived into the Clinton impeachment. Lewinsky was 24 years old. About two years earlier, she'd become involved in a precarious relationship with the President of the United States. It's hard not to notice some similarities to what's happening today. In the long history of the American presidency, there's never been anything like this. Sex, lies, and constitutional duty. These kind of issues are not private matters. Slow Burns presenter Leon Nafak is with me today on Russia If You're Listening. Hello, Leon. Hello, Matt. How are you? Very well, thank you. Look, Leon, you are far too young to have experienced Watergate <laughs> firsthand, and uh, you talk about you know experiencing you know seeing the Clinton scandal happen on the news, uh, but you are still uh, probably a bit too young to understand the full implications of it. What made you decide to spend a year or so researching these old investigations? Well, so Watergate was coming up in the news uh, a whole lot back in uh, the late summer. Uh, last year that we that we started researching, and people on the news kept you know invoking Watergate as a reference point for Trump's relationship with the Mueller investigation and uh, kind of using it as shorthand for a scandal of, of of immense proportion and complexity. Yeah. So like you know, is this as big as Watergate yet? Uh, you know, are we looking at a Saturday Night Massacre that sort of thing? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Those. I mean, I think that the two sort of main main threads were. You know, is this as as serious as Watergate? Is this possibly as consequential as Watergate? And as you just as you just suggested, I think there was always the question: Is there a, a realistic threat that that he will trigger a, a modern Saturday Night Massacre in which he would fire Mueller or fire Rod Rosenstein for refusing to fire Mueller? And so we thought it would be valuable to sort of go back and dig into that story and, you know, try to get past the shorthand, right, and, and, and really kind of tell, tell it from beginning to end with an emphasis on what it was like to live through it at the time because we wanted to know whether, you know, Americans who were paying attention to the Watergate scandal as it unfolded, whether their experience of that scandal was anything like uh, our experience of of the uh, of the Russia uh, scandal. Uh, so one of the interesting things that you observe in the early episodes of season one is that Watergate took a while to gain traction with the public. I, I assume that's the slow burn from your podcast name. That's right. It was sort of a little scandal which uh, built up and up and up. And uh, the Russia investigation is kind of the opposite. It started big and has continued raging ever since. So, you know, you, you mentioned that you wonder if it was a different experience for people living through Watergate. Do you think it, it was different in, in that way, in that one scandal started so slowly and one exploded? Would that have changed the way the public perceived it? Uh, it's an interesting observation. I actually hadn't really thought about it that way. I think when we when we did the first season, I think a lot of people who listened to it, at least the first couple episodes, they saw it as a, as a reason to feel reassured that, wow, you know, this took two years and two months from when the burglary occurred to when Nixon resigned. And so perhaps that means that we can count on a similar timeline with this situation, that this, you know, this long national nightmare, I think, as just Gerald Ford put it after the fact, will, will end uh, on schedule. But you're absolutely right that whereas Watergate took... Uh, a bunch of months before, uh, you know, a significant 
portion of the American population kind of tuned into it, Russia has been a, a subject of, in, of, of great interest and curiosity pretty much since Trump's election. Well, one, one of the interesting things you observe is that you know, originally it was almost like a local court story. Uh, Watergate. Yeah. It was like you know, local court reporters were going down and seeing what's going on with the, uh, you know, investigation into these burglars who you know popped into the DNC and. Yeah, I mean, the extraordinary thing was that the that the that the seventy two election took place you know months after uh, after the burglary and by that point a whole lot was known, you know, and despite the fact that, you know, Walter Cronkite had had devoted a, you know a, a huge chunk of of his primetime news broadcast to explaining the story and. and Sort of doing what similar, something similar to what sounds like what you're doing, and, and trying to kind of connect all the dots for people who hadn't necessarily been paying attention. Despite all that, despite the fact that you know many of the connections have been made to between the burglars and the Nixon campaign for re-election, Nixon won that election in a landslide. And it was only after the fact, I think it was in March uh, of '73, that somehow uh, the scandal kind of penetrated the public consciousness. And so, you know, I, I do wonder if. The fact that, that the Russia scandal has sort of um, seemingly was at a fever pitch almost from the from the jump, maybe took away some of the momentum, you know, at least as far as the public public perception of it goes. You know, I think the, the work that Mueller and his team are doing is, is proceeding apace and it's, you know, going in the direction it's going independently of public opinion or public interest in the subject. It was a massive thing, though, Watergate. When, when you, you, you were describing um, the TV coverage of it, uh, when the Senate hearings were happening, you know, you were saying that, you know, TV stations were carrying it all day and then would play repeats of it through the night. It was an enormous cultural phenomenon in America while it was happening, wasn't it? Totally, yeah, and it, it, it became one. But and it was, you know, part of our challenge with the with the show is trying to kind of trace the kind of drivers of that of that increased interest, right? So how did it go from being a, a local story to something that the whole country was obsessed with? But yeah, by the time uh, the Senate Watergate hearing started, I mean, it really penetrated and and the whole country was obsessed with it. You know, I think that it helped that you had this extremely dramatic thing unfolding that was being televised, right? You had all these well-known, or if not well-known, then at least extremely powerful and, and, and patently powerful individuals who were being asked questions in a way that you never see powerful people being asked questions on, on live television. And it was just really good TV, right? So I think that that really, the fact that it was that it was fun to follow along I think made a big difference. Yeah. There are a lot of echoes, of course, you know, and, and I'm sure that people have observed with you uh, that there are huge numbers of echoes between what you've reported in the, in the water, on the Watergate issue and what's happening now. But one thing I sort of keep coming back to when I think about your first season is this question that nobody's really been able to answer for 45 years, and it's about Nixon's decision not to burn the incriminating tapes he made in the office. Here's uh, R- Richard Nixon talking about it years after the fact. Are you sorry you didn't burn the tapes? You know, interestingly enough, everybody in Europe that I talked to said, why didn't you burn mm. the tapes? And the answer is, I probably should have. But if you place. had it to do all over again, you'd burn them? Yes, I think so. Nixon must have known that handing those tapes over was the end of his presidency. So why do you think, having looked into this for a year. Why do you think he didn't burn them? Boy, I wish I had a good answer for this. Uh, I I guess there was a part of Nixon that ultimately did respect, uh, you know, the the rule of law. I suppose it's funny to say that considering everything, but I suppose some part of him just knew that that would be wrong. Maybe he thought he'd be able to wiggle out of it uh, in the way that, you know, and, and and he tried, you know, to be fair. Like, 
there's a point when you know the tapes were not publicly released yet, but he took the step of releasing transcripts, you know, lot, lots and lots of pages of transcripts that um, turned out to have been edited very uh, dramatically and, and, and were sort of uh, defanged of some of the most, most incriminating quotes. One of my favorite moments in, in, in the first season of Slow Burn was after the Nixon people released those transcripts, someone on the House Judiciary Committee, uh, which was beginning an impeachment inquiry, you know, noticed the discrepancies because they had listened to some of the tapes and they noticed some of the discrepancies and someone leaked uh, to the press about it. And one of Nixon's sort of spokespeople, uh, Pat Buchanan, <laughs> went out and, and, and said, you know, in a press conference that the real crime here is the, this leak. Uh, who is doing all these leak, all this leaking? Uh, if you guys, if you reporters were serious about your jobs, you would be investigating that. You know, and as you That's, said, that were, feels were, very were, familiar. Were, are, 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 that exactly, feels familiar yeah, at the moment. Yeah, and you know, to be truthful, like I, I, we didn't, we didn't really bend the narrative in the direction of parallels on purpose. Like we didn't, we didn't chase them. We didn't kind of deliberately contort our account of the story in order to play those up. But that was one example of a. Of, a, of an anecdote that I was like, you know, if there was no parallel, I probably wouldn't have included that quote. <laughs> but the fact that the that it just sounded like it could have been said the, the day before was was a compelling reason to include it. The interesting thing, though, that you say about, you know, that Nixon had some allegiance to the rule of law leads me to wonder whether you think Donald Trump would hand over the tapes. If Donald Trump had incriminating tapes of himself, would he burn them or would he hand them over? What do you think? Oh boy, I think he'd find a way not to, not to turn them over. I wasn't expecting you'd be have an easy answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like if for no other reason than he saw that what happened when when you turn over the tapes, right? He 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 saw that the power of one one sees in looking at the Nixon story, this the power of of that kind of documentary evidence. I think he would probably find a way to uh, to destroy them. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's possible that Nixon also was making a political calculation, right? Maybe he thought that destroying the tapes, obviously, would, it, would, it would come out that he had done that, right? And maybe he made the calculation that people wouldn't tolerate that, that, that politically he would lose the support of his Republican colleagues on, on Capitol Hill, that he would just look so guilty if he destroyed the evidence that it wouldn't save him anyway. And it's possible, I guess, Trump might make the same calculation. The other thing, though, is that Nixon didn't wait to be forced from office, he resigned, which is, you know, something else that a lot of people say that Donald Trump would never be able to do. Donald Trump would force the Congress to remove him from office rather than resigning no matter how much trouble he seemed to be in. So, yeah, I, I wonder whether, you know, this fun, there's a fundamental difference between Trump and Nixon in the, the way that they would respond if they got into that level of trouble. It's hard to say. I mean, Nixon was known throughout his life as someone who hated to lose and hated to give up and, and, and would do everything possible to avoid throwing in a towel. And the fact that he did, I think, just speaks to the, the level of jeopardy he was in. He just didn't see any way that he... He, he, was, he had been just been told, you know, very directly that, that if he didn't resign, he would be uh, forcibly removed by Democrats and, and, and his fellow Republicans. One, one thing that uh, I think about a lot is that Part of the power, part of the reason, part of the reason why momentum shifted against Nixon in the in that sort of last stage, part of the reason why Republicans finally stopped uh, apologizing for him, and, and you know, I think one of the myths about Watergate is that Republicans were were willing to put truth over pow- party or, or or truth over par- power, and that they were willing to criticize him and willing to turn on him. The truth is, like that, that didn't happen until the very last second, and what what happened at the last second was the was the was the emergence of a of the so-called smoking gun tape in which Nixon can be heard essentially using 
you know, the federal law enforcement agencies to, 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 to cover up the crime and to squash the investigation that the FBI had begun. He tried to get the CIA essentially to intervene and, and, and try to get the FBI investigation squashed. But that tape, once it was turned over, I think part of its impact was that no one had heard it before and no one had no one knew about its contents. Whereas with with Trump, you know, so many of the things that many of the things one can point to to to, to make the case that there, there was obstruction of justice in the in the Russian investigation, for instance, when Comey uh, when when Trump fired uh, James Comey. Trump has said all that stuff out loud, right? He said it on Twitter. He has said it on national television. You know, the famous moment in that NBC interview where he says, after the Comey firing, well, you know, sure, there was that memo that, that Rod Rosenstein wrote about how Comey needed to be fired because uh, of his handling of the Clinton email stuff, but I was going to fire him anyway. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but he... No, that's, pr- that's pretty much exactly what he said, yeah. I was going to fire him anyway, and I was and I was thinking about Russia when I did it. Yeah, I think the Russia thing, right? The Russia story was a, was a fake story. If that had come out on a tape, right, if that had been a secret conversation that he'd had, it would have had a very different valence, I think. It would have been so much more shocking and, and so much made such a more lasting impact if it had been something Trump said in private and that had been sort of forced into daylight by a leak or by a subpoena or whatever. Um, the fact that he was just willing to say it publicly kind of robbed it of its of its power, right? It suddenly was like, oh, well, if he's willing to just say it, it must not be that bad. No one would go on national television and incriminate themselves, so maybe... <laughs> and admit, them, admit to obstruction of justice, yeah. Uh, look, so you've just uh, finished uh, season two, which is about the four-year investigation into an Arkansas property deal that Bill and Hillary Clinton were involved in, which gradually morphed into the Lewinsky scandal. Was this a more complicated story to explain than Watergate? Strangely, it was, and I didn't necessarily expect it to be. You know, I, would, I was I joked with friends, uh, or I would say, I would tell friends, oh, you know, we think we're doing we're going to do the we're going to do Clinton for our second season, and I'd say, oh, so you know, you're you're going to do the Lewinsky story, and I would jokingly say, oh no, I think we're going to, you know, focus on the on the interesting scandal, uh, you know, Whitewater. <laughs> the, the joke being that Whitewater is incredibly boring, uh, incredibly hard to understand. It has a lot of moving parts that don't move very fast. Um, and that are very hard to um, kind of sum up in a, in a fun way. But uh, as I s- realized quite quickly once I started researching, you can actually can't explain how the Lewinsky situation came about without first going back and explaining Whitewater uh, and explaining some other uh, storylines, including, most importantly, the Paula Jones sexual harassment lawsuit, um, all of which began years earlier, right? I mean, the impeachment proceedings began in, 19, in, in 1998. The story broke in, in January of that year. But, you know, as we realized when we were kind of blocking out the season, we had to really start during Clinton's years in Arkansas as as, uh, attorney general and governor. And you can't really tell the story without doing that. So in that sense, you know, there was was a slower burn (laughs) in a way. Yeah, you kind of had to start in 1978 or something like that, didn't you? Yeah, and we ended up, yeah, we ended up having some material from 1978 uh, in the last episode. It was, it, and, and I think the other thing more complicated about it, putting aside just the, the, the sort of the details of Whitewater, which, which are just are very tricky and, and involve bank loans and, and fuzzy accusations that don't make a lot of intuitive sense because the Clintons lost money in the land deal. So, like, what's really the crime here? Like, what are we accusing them of? It was always, it was hard to kind of boil that down to a, to a shiny object the way you sort of need to with, with a narrative like this. So the reason it was complicated to tell, particularly in this format within a podcast, where you really want a linear storyline that doesn't double back on itself in terms of the chronology is that a lot of the storylines that 
you have to explain and, 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 and walk people through were overlapping, right? So the Paula Jones lawsuit lasted years. And, and uh, by the time it brought Monica Lewinsky to the forefront by way of a subpoena that she, had, that she was served with, it had been going on for, for a very long time. And so in order to tell that story uh, and then you know, shift to the affair between Lewinsky and Clinton, you really had to kind of try to separate out the strands and, and, and separate a lot of overlapping pieces um, and that made it that made it that made it harder to tell that's a problem that we we had quite a bit in uh, with Russia as well because uh, you know there was in, in you know June of 2016 about 14 different things were all happening at the same time that you know weren't necessarily connected or linear it's just yeah it's very complicated uh, but look one of the interesting things about the uh, the investigation into Whitewater which became known as the Ken Starr investigation is that it started with a property deal and it ended up looking into an affair which hadn't even happened when the investigation began. So it sort of became a perfect example of a fishing ex- ex- expedition. Do you think that gave inquiries like this a bit of a bad name? I think they already had a bad name. Um, I think, like, for instance, one of Clinton's advisors, Bernie Nussbaum, uh, was very strongly against uh, the appointment of the Independent Council at a time when at a time when the Whitewater scandal was really kind of picking up steam in the media and in, and in Congress with Republicans really trying to make a big issue out of it, the feeling in the White House, particularly among some of the, I think, publicity folks, the, the, the spokespeople, they felt like, look, you know, we got we to gotta get out in front of this and we got to request that, that the Department of Justice appoint a special prosecutor to, to look into this because we want to just clear the table and we want them to just dig into all this stuff, get it out in the open and get it over with. And Bernie Nussbaum, uh, who's White House counsel, uh, felt like that was an invitation to just a slow death where the person who got that job would inevitably find something, anything to turn into a scandal. And, and he, he, was, he was worried that there was sort of just a uh, kind of a built in aggressiveness or voraciousness in the independent counsel's office that would necessarily lead to trouble for the White House rather than, you know, uh, a kind of clean sl- slate, which is what they were after, I think. You know, and so I think uh, the fact that, that Starr ended up devoting his entire uh, impeachment referral to the Lewinsky stuff, and, and I think mentioned Whitewater four times in the in the whole report, uh, including like a footnote, I think that, that just sort of showed you that this is an institution that lends itself to that kind of what was the what was the phrase you used? Fishing expedition. You don't need to call it a fishing expedition to think that it is. It's almost like a magnet. It's like a magnet that will, or a or a vacuum cleaner or whatever. That I don't know what the right metaphor here is, but it'll just suck up anything it can. And um, in that sense, it's 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 inherently. I mean, it's hard to see, you know. I, I want. I was going to say distracting, but in fact, maybe it's not fair to say that because. You know, if they if they if you hadn't done anything wrong, there wouldn't have been anything to uh, to investigate. Yeah, to, to investigate, right? So I think the I think the, the the star prosecutors would say, look, you know, we were sure we were we were investigating something unrelated to this, but we found out that the president was committing crimes. What were we supposed to do? Do you see um, the Mueller investigation in the same way? You, you know, we're starting. You know, we started with the idea of Russian collusion, and now we're looking into everything from Donald Trump's, you know, business history to Michael Cohen's taxi medallions to just a huge, wide range of things. Do you see this sort of going a similar way? I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I mean, we know so little about the inner workings of the Mueller investigation. Like they've been so disciplined about 
you know, not letting any information out about what they're up to, what they, what their grand theory of the situation is, how they think all this stuff is connected. That um, you know, it's hard to say. I think whether they're straying from their mission statement or their mandate, I suppose is the, is the mm, more yeah, appropriate sure. word. Yeah. The other thing is, I'll say is that with the, with the Michael Cohen stuff, they they very uh, deliberately um, shunted that off to to uh, you know local uh, federal prosecutors' offices, right in, in New York. And so that, I think that was an acknowledgement that that was a separate thing. In the end, the, the House voted to impeach Clinton, but the Senate wasn't even close to convicting him. A lot of senators believe the, believe that Clinton had definitely done something wrong, but didn't think he completely deserved to be thrown out of office. Do you think that was down just to party loyalty or something more than that? Uh, it's a hard question. I think there was a sense among de- Democrats, certainly, uh, and maybe, maybe even some Republicans, I dare say, that... Uh, it's one thing to use the powers of the government, the federal government that you control as president to obstruct justice, and in a, di- in a different thing entirely to, you know, obstruct justice in the way that Clinton did, which was uh, something that anyone could do. I mean, anyone can, can lie in a civil deposition or ask someone else to lie in a civil deposition. And uh, I think that played into it a little bit. I think there was a sense that, look, we're just arguing about sex here, not matters of national security or, or, or the rule of law. I think there was a counter-argument that was quite strong, too, that said, look, here was this woman, Paula Jones, who was trying to get her fair day in court, and Clinton, uh, whether he was president or not, who cares, he was trying to deny her that day in court by stacking the deck against her through uh, perjury. So to answer your question, whether it was all party loyalty, I don't know. I mean, there were, you know, there were Republicans, obviously, who voted against impeachment. Uh, I spoke to one of them, Chris Shays, who, who felt that these, these accusations just didn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense. So I don't, I don't think it was purely purely partisan. Looking at where the Russia investigation is up to now, from what we can tell, as you say, you know, it's, it's sometimes difficult to see what's going on inside. Uh, we've got a pile of guilty pleas, a couple of convictions, and having looked at the other investigations as a comparison point, where do you think where do you think the progress bar is up to on the Mueller investigation? If you had to guess, <laughs> if I had to guess. If I if I pinned you down and forced you to guess, yeah, I, I think there's like people are always saying like, oh, you know, the expectation is they'll wrap up, you know, sometime before the end of the year. I mean, I don't know, but I don't know what people are basing this on. Honestly, I'm sure there's reporters who are well, you know, who are who have sources within that office, but I feel like uh, no one really knows what they're doing. Maybe some people know pieces of it, but not the whole picture. It is very difficult to see what's going on without the excitement of a Senate or a, or a, a congressional hearing to watch everything like we had with, with Watergate, yeah. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I think the fact that, you know, the Mueller, Mueller office is not leaking the way Starr's office seems to have leaked uh, makes, it, makes it hard to know what people are saying in the grand jury. You know, with, with the Starr investigation, like, you know, you were getting reports every day from the grand jury room that, that sort of told everyone what you know, what Monica Lewinsky had testified to, what, what what her mother had testified to, and we're just not getting that. Yeah. Uh, just finally, uh, do you think uh, you, you've got a third season in you? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we're trying to figure it out right now what we're doing. Um, we have a bunch of different options that we are exploring. Uh, it's very fun to, to think about it. I think we've sort of hit on an approach that, that I feel like is now proven and that we can apply to a, to a variety of different kinds of stories. And so the question we're sort of asking ourselves is like, how narrowly do we want to define the show? You know, is slow burn about impeachment? You know, in which case, you know, we don't have much more work to do, uh, given there's only one other presidential impeachment that we could do, and it's one that uh, would not uh, would not offer a lot of possibilities in terms of archival footage or or uh, interviews with living people. Not a lot of news grabs from uh, yeah, 1870 exactly, exactly. or whatever it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so then the question is, okay, is it, is it about political scandal? Is it about just big historical events that people kind of remember but kind of don't? So those are the questions we're asking ourselves as we, uh, as we try to decide on what we're doing next. Not that I want to tell you how to do your job, but I would be fascinated. No, please do. I would, I'd please be do fascinated it. to hear more on Iran Contra. Uh, yep, just, that's just, one. That's one that's definitely in the mix for just, sure. <laughs> uh, the fact that Oliver North somehow got under that and is now the president of the NRA is just an astonishing little fact of history. Amazing. I know, right? Isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Leon, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. Thanks for talking to us here at Russia. If you're listening, yeah, Matt. Thank you so much for the questions. I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Leon Nafak is the host of the podcast Slow Burn. If you like Russia, if you're listening, I guarantee you'll like Slow Burn. And look, vice versa as well. If you like Slow Burn, you'll like Russia if you're listening as well. I'm Matt Bevan. Thanks for listening.